mouse, touch screen, trackball, keyboards, etc. Those are all input devices. What happens when you connect stuff to your machine? How does Unix handle those? This is what we're going to discuss today. Input devices on Unix. Today we have two guests, Zebra and SSHBio. Hey Let's hope you understand the input devices on Unix. I'm Vinam and you're listening to the Nixers Podcast. Let's start where everything starts. And the TTY. And the TTY there isn't much to interact with other than text. And thus the only viable input is the keyboard. Typing text. Our first guess is that those are raw keyboard inputs. It seems like that at first, that everything would be hard-coded in the kernel. Just a glance at the source code of, for example, the Linux kernel, and we can see that there's a mapping of the keys directly written into it. And thus you may guess that if you want to change the keyboard layout, you need to recompile the kernel with the appropriate mapping to configure the keys the way you want to. However, that's just partly true. You can do the same in user land using the init process, the id1 for instance, rc.conf or systemd. Uh, if you change the keyboard translation with this process, it will um, propagate the, consult the, the keyboard layout change to all its children. That's why it will uh, look like everything is using this uh, layout. So configuration of the init process. Or you can also use some other ways that could be specific to your operating system, like locals, or you can temporarily set the custom map using the common load keys. The common load keys, in fact, modifies the console keyboard driver translation table of the kernel. Thus, it modifies how the kernel understands every key that is sent to it. From this, you can say that it's not really hard-coded, but translated. This topic of translation, how the input devices and events are understood, will be talked a lot in this podcast. At every single level, there's a certain way of understanding input devices, their related events, and how to handle them. A little nota bene here. I'm not so sure of it, but it's plausible that the handling of input was really hard-coded in the kernel and the first version of Unix. Because most operating systems Unix-like pre-1980 were tied to a single hardware platform. It makes sense, but I'm not sure of it. We said that in the TTY all that matters is text. However, it doesn't mean that the mouse is excluded. There's a piece of software called the GPM, General Purpose Mouse, which is surprisingly a cursor in the TTY. It gives the ability to move a little black cursor on the screen, which you can use to select and copy text. And it's quite nifty and useful, so I urge you to check it out. And I, I didn't check the lower level implementation and how it translates it and understands it at the TTY level, but that's an exercise that I leave to the listener. So overall, other than keyboards and mice, there are not many input devices that make sense to use in the TTY. Maybe there are some that do make sense, but then they are also most probably considered as mice or keyboards. Now, let's remember, you have to remember that on Unix, everything is a file. 
and the TTY doesn't magically get the inputs from the hardware and understand them. It has to use some sort of ways to get those values. It doesn't speak hardware language. What seem to us like hard-coded values are in fact interpreted events received where the TTY sits at the higher level. What we're gonna discuss now is what is happening at this lower level. The lowest level consists of the slash dev directory. Let's refresh our mind about what is and what's the role of the slash dev directory. What is slash dev and what is what is it used for? Uh, under Unix operating system, there is a slash dev directory available in the root uh, that is used to hold, contain all the devices plugged into the computer and provide interfaces to these devices. It's a virtual version of the hardware of any hardware that is connected to your machine. It might be, uh, for example, USB devices, keyboard, mouse. Uh, headphones, external Wi-Fi cards, or printers, or whatever. Everything that is plugged into your computer is represented under this di directory. And as on Unix, everything is a file. They are represented as files under this directory. Maybe the listeners will better understand with a little example. In early Unix days, when OSS was still the sound device, you could just play random music by dumping the content of a file to slash dev slash dsp, and it would just magically produce sound. To understand the slash dev directory, you have to understand its history, and that's what we're going to go through now. So, uh, let's move on to the slash dev directory. Slash How dev does it directory. work? How is it populated? And what's in there? At first, the slash dev directories was statically populated. So, whenever you plugged in a, a device, you had to manually create the, the file corresponding to your device by using the mknode command. So, for example, whenever you wanted to uh, plug in a device, you had to run, for example, a USB device, you had to run mknode the, and a magic set of parameters to finally be able to access your file. Uh, it was really tedious and bother and, and really boring. So uh, a new file system came up named DevFS, Dev File System, which would uh, mount, be mounted on slash dev and it would create all possible devices that could be plugged into the computer. So your slash dev directory was already populated with everything that could be plugged in. So you had a huge lot of files in this directory. So whenever you had to plug in a new device, you could easily just mount your device because the file was already created and uh, it was instantly accessible. The problem with this method is that as everything was already created, you, has n you had no way to know what was plugged in and what wasn't. So uh, it was really tedious. So that's where the device manager enters the game. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So what's the relation with the device manager? The device manager was introduced because, as Zebra said, it was really tedious otherwise. But also because of other problems. For example, when devices are connected, they are mapped to a file in slash dev, indeed. Now, what if this is, for example, a printer and the script maps it as printer1? Then suddenly this printer disconnects and another printer is connected. This new printer is mapped as printer number one because the script only maps to the next uh, number. What will happen of the current printing process that was happening on printer one? 
Will it suddenly start printing on this new printer? Well, that's a big issue. There are many of those annoying edge cases. The answer to all the conflicts, like in the example of an action that was ongoing and is interrupted, is the device manager. That's its role and its function. What do we know about the different device managers on the current most popular Unix-like operating systems? Let's start with the BSD. On FreeBSD, for example, the device manager is called NewBus. On Linux, as it's a kernel driver, there can be many implementations and we'll talk about them in more depth in a bit. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the name of other device manager and I couldn't find much information about the other BSDs. However, one of the big differences between the BSDs and Linux is that the way the device manager maps devices is handled differently. On the BSDs, they're handled and configured at the kernel level, and on Linux, on the contrary, they're handled in user space by a kernel driver. The input events also need to be handled and not necessarily by the device manager, but it gives rise to a concept called an input event interface. And the input event interface role is to generalize raw inputs. It does that by abstracting the way the kernel communicates with the hardware through the help of a specific driver for the related hardware input component. So for example, you could have a specific driver for a specific keyboard. In order for this to work, the events are sent from an API, which is set at the kernel level. So what's a device driver in the end? It's a component that interface between the kernel generic view and a, a representation in the file system. In the case of Linux, that's it, and that's why it's, uh, it's said that everything is a file. So it's something that will translate how the hardware works to an interface that can be used by the kernel. So it's really an, an API in the end. For instance, on both Linux and BSD, the handling of USB events is handled by a USB HID driver, which stands for the USB Human Interface Device, which is the implementation of the protocol USB input devices use. Let's talk a bit about Linux. The event driver exposes events inside the user space. It's not hidden at the kernel level. Maybe this design is a bit more flexible, Depends on the way you see it. And this is done through an FDEV, an Event Device Manager, which is simply a role that the device manager takes by mapping new input devices under slash dev slash input slash event with a little number at the end to recognize which device it is. And if you listen to this file, you will notice binary data going through some sort of stream which is in fact a C structure of a strict format called input underscore events. And it's a well-documented format that any other program can listen to and read from it to know what input devices are doing and sending as events using this sort of API. We can find that flexibility in other areas. You can add actions, rules, and policies on input devices interactions. Sorts of triggers are sent to and from the kernel when something is connected, disconnected, etc. The rules can be anything. 
they can be related to the device plug, to the time it is plugged, to anything literally. It can trigger script or command, etc. etc. On Linux, those rules are specifically in slash lib slash udev slash rules or slash lib slash whatever your device manager is slash rules. Because remember that on Linux, it's a kernel driver. It's not directly part of the kernel. And thus you can have any device manager you want. On FreeBSD, as it's the only BSD I could find good documentation about the subject, you might think that you wouldn't have much choice because it's kernel based, but they use something called DevD, device daemon, and the configuration rules of DevD and slash etc slash devd.conf have some rules similar to those found in Linux. Thus, you can add events on attach, detach, notify, no match, etc. Now, for this devd to work on FreeBSD, you have to start the daemon in your rc.conf in its script of FreeBSD. So now the devd listens to the kernel events on trigger. Let's mention on Linux, you can also do this trigger at the kernel level. The Linux kernel also had uh, an hot-plug interface where uh, it would let user space register a program to be run whenever uh, a device was hot-plugged. This is something that appeared in kernel uh, version 2.6, if I remember correctly. So you could write, for example, uh, a pass to a file to, to run to slash proc slash sys slash kernel slash hot-plug. And whenever a device was connected, it would just run this command, execute this command. So uh, it was a, a simpler way to, uh, at least, uh, not, not really simpler, but a, a useful interface to let the user run a command whenever a device was plugged. And a device manager where some device manager were implemented that way, so they would not have to be running all the time, like in demand mode, but they were called whenever a device was plugged and they would just create the file in slash dev and just kit. So uh, it will be a bit more simple than what udev does with all the rules and such, but that was another interface and I think it's worth mentioning it. So both Linux and FreeBSD offer this sort of flexibility on trigger. Again, if you find more info about other BSDs, Please uh, notify me. Nota bene, most input devices are character devices. We know there are many device managers on Linux, but what's the deal with them? What are the differences? Why would someone use one and not the other? As of today, it's mostly, uh, I think, a political choice because, for example, you have uh, Udev, which is tightly coupled with Systemd, so if you run an OS or at least a Linux distribution that is not based on Systemd, you need to find a new device manager, so Gen2 uh, is maintaining EUDev, which is a fork of Udev before it got merged into, uh, into Systemd. There, are also, there is also MDev, which is the device manager for um, BuzzyBox, which you might use for embedded devices whenever you want to, uh, for example, keep your user space as small as possible. So having a, a, a device manager integrated into the, the BuzzyBox binary is pretty useful in this case. Also, if I remember correctly, MDev for BuzzyBox is using the hot plug, uh, the hot plug mechanism from the, of the kernel. 
and there is also SMDev, which stands for Suckless Minimalist uh, Device Manager, Suckless Manager of Devices, I'm not sure, <laughs> which is loosely uh, like BuzzyBox uh, Device Manager, but just is just a simple uh, a simple implementation that can be run on any system. So yeah, the choice of the device manager is just up to the user and depending of what he likes and wants to turn in his system into. Let's sum up about device managers. The big difference between Linux and the BSDs is that on Linux, the device manager runs in user space and on BSD, it runs in kernel space. It dynamically creates and removes device files. That's its main role. And it provides them with consistent naming convention. It gives an API for programs to get events from devices. And it can have a set of rules and policies regarding those devices interaction. Let's review some useful debugging comments for input devices. On Linux, because of the special slash proc directory, you can get info from all the devices from the slash proc slash bus slash input slash devices file. You get almost the same output on FreeBSD using cam control. There's also the lsusb command on Linux, which lists all the USB devices. Uh, the equivalent on FreeBSD is USB config. On both operating systems, you can use the command for kernel debugging, dmessage, dmesg, debug message. It will uh, list all the trigger and events the kernel gets on input devices connected and disconnected. So this is all for the raw level of input devices. The events are interpreted and they don't really make sense if they aren't in a graphical environment. And that's where we'll ha have to move now. Because if you have a touchscreen or joystick, those are input devices and they don't make sense when they aren't used inside the graphical environment. The graphical environment is a layer above the kernel and the device manager. The inputs are also handled at that level, and that's what we're gonna discuss. Ooh, yeah. There are two main graphical environments, or display servers. There's X11 and Wayland. Wayland being a simple protocol definition doesn't include any specs for handling input events. It's the role of the compositor implementing the protocol to do so. To manage that, they built a library called libinput, which is a workaround that takes in consideration the legacy of X11. It's an abstraction of the input event handling that X11 has. It's a generic XORG input library. No need to mention that X11 handles the event itself. Thus, libinput and X11 have the same handling of events. X11 has a backend that listens for new events. On FreeBSD, it listens to DevD, and on Linux, it listens to the input device manager implementation, any of the ones Zebra previously mentioned. Once it gets an event, it checks if there's an X driver for it and handles the event depending on that driver's configuration. So how does that event handling happen in the graphical environment? There are plenty of input devices, but most of them have no meaning outside of a graphical environment. Their configuration has no meaning outside of it, like, just like a touchpad. 
the touch can only take a true meaning if it's inside of X or something that can have graphical interface ability. The sensitivity acceleration, how the mouse will move, what do the buttons do, gestures, etc. And the same for the touchscreen, joystick, keyboard mapping, etc. So the graphical environment handles them with driver specific for each device category or through the device directly. A driver or an extension or joystick, one for mouse, one for keyboard, etc. And all configuration can be done at the user level. Both LibInput and X11 have the same configuration, fortunately. They are configured at usr share x11 xor.conf.d or scroll utility specific to, the, to each driver. If you configure it through a file, you need to restart the graphical environment to, to, for this to take effect. It cannot be done directly. But if you use a command line utility, you don't have to. That's the interest. I have one example. With the joystick by default, when you install the driver for it, it takes the, when you move the, the, the arrows on the joystick, it takes them as if it's a mouse input. And so it moves the mouse. And to remove that, you have to edit the file. And then it doesn't directly take effect. You have to log in, log out, and restart the X environment. Yeah, that makes sense. Only editing the file won't change anything uh, as the file is loaded only uh, when X starts. Example of some useful commands are X set, X input. You may know XSet to configure font. And then for testing XSet, you can use XL. Weird and awkward stories. Multi-seat system when you use X input, where you have a core keyboard and then you ha can have two core keyboards and both of them are valid and you can have two mouse and they're mapped as two pointers on the screen. <laughs> Which is kind of fun. Yeah, it seems nice. <laughs> Bluetooth input devices. Uh, as I've read and find out, some Bluetooth are mapped through the HID, Human Interfa Interface Device. And this is like the interface that is usually used for USBs, input devices like keyboards and uh, mice, etc. So Bluetooth mapped to HID, and then it's used as an input device. But as I've read and found out, some Apple devices they have some proprietary stuff that you once you just connect to through the Bluetooth without even having to map it through HID, they're di directly mapped as an input devices, which is nifty. I didn't try it because I don't have a, an Apple product, but uh, I guess that's cool. I tried to install Linux on my father's Mac, iMac, but uh, I the only thing which was not working was. Uh, the Bluetooth mouse, so, okay. <laughs> on a more serious note, Mac OS being based on a Unix kernel does offer some input device management. It shares most of its kernel part with Darwin, and by reading the official documentation, we can understand that it also, like other BSDs, has a kernel-based implementation of the input device management. It has true plug-and-play dynamic device management, as in hot plugging, and power management for both desktops and portables. It is also said that they will directly support most of the thing that you connect to their machine that follow their standard specifications, but that for other devices you'll need a driver. So if you just connect the Bluetooth mouse, it will work directly. 
sort of like they said, true plug-and-play. And this is understandable as Apple ships its own hardware and peripherals with its OS. Uh, I'm still struggling with trying to change the LED on my mice, my mouse. So and these programmable keyboards are not like mapping, changing the, the mapping inside the, the operating system. It's directly changing the key code it sends to the operating system. So it may be quite a, a mess to figure out. Okay, I'm sending this key to my OS, and I, I, I must be sure the OS has the, the correct layout, and I must be sure that my keyboard has the correct layout as well. So I don't know how people do to, to make custom layouts. All right. There. Accessibility inputs, inputs for disabled people or persons that have issues. What can we say about those on Unix? Uh, this is a part that is really important because some people need to use a computer but might not be able to use the typical uh, input or output devices, so uh, the screen or, or a mouse, for example. So it's important that the kernel is, an, is able to accept devices that will help disabled people to use their computer. You, it is usually done at user space, so there will be software that will read on screen what you are highlighting, for example, or read out loud, out loud what you are typing. So uh, this is, for example, uh, softwares like Orca, which uh, will read out uh, everything that is uh, typed on the screen or selected with the my mouse, etc. So people can use their computer even if they can't see the screen. So that's really impressive to see. Uh, I know there is also braille characters for the ter the terminal, and uh, there are the characters and such. But I must say I have no idea how it works. I know I just know is they are very expensive. Well, I, I did read a little story about that of a blind dude that wanted to install Linux from scratch, and he had to debug the boot process. And inside the boot process, there are no no output, nothing to help him, no braille, no nothing. So he had to just, uh, I don't know, read what the output could look like on the forum from another machine to then That's figure great. out what to do. But I know also that inside the TTY itself, there there is braille support, braille support. So uh, as he said in the story, it took him like, I think, two years to just install Linux, which is quite a lot. Yeah. Impressive. <laughs> there are even full desktop environments that focus on interacting with audio only. You can speak to the machine and the machine reads back the text from the screen. So instead of reading, you can listen. This is great for blind people to interact with their Unix box. And you could even just take some parts of that idea. It can be used to, as an interface with uh, IRC as an example. Each time someone mentions its nickname uh, to have the, the message speaking out loud, I think it's uh, Sasha Chua who did this with uh, Emma. So uh, devices for disabled people can also help people without disabilities. Indeed, yeah. Security tip about access control, but on devices. 
So if you want to give a user access to an input device, so you keep in mind that also the memory is mapped as a device. So if you give a user access to all devices, he's going to be able to access the memory. And the root user also accesses the memory, the same memory. So he might be able to get root access and that's a security hole on your system. Nowadays, you can't have a box work without any device connected, except if you are using an update device which will have everything plugged in directly. But uh, we plugged in device to, we plugged in We plug in hardware to devices all the time, so uh, you, it might be your mouse, your, uh, your external hard drive, your phone, your headphones. There might be a lot of devices, and it's important to know at least, at least basically how it's handled, because it will help you uh, troubleshoot it whenever there is an issue. For example, uh, I had for multiple times an issue with plugging my USB devices and At first, when I noticed that it didn't show up in slash dev, I just realized that my USB connector wasn't plugged in into the motherboard. So knowing uh, how to de debug things and where to find information is important to me, at least. And I think it might help other people as well. And if I wanted to add something, like just a little thing, I would say that when you know like this architecture, it gives you an idea of a good architecture of the delegation of roles, like the kernel only does what it's supposed to do. And then to the kernel, it doesn't matter like what to do with the graphical environment, which is not the same with some other operating system that do handle the events and the graphical and everything and the one place and everything. So this is all about the input devices on Unix. Big thanks to our guests today, Zebra and SSH Bio. If you want to join them, to contact them, you can check their websites. Zebra is on zebra.org, z3brra.org. Uh, on IRC directly or by email. And SSH Bio is on joshua.net, j-o-s-u-a-h.net. Oh, I use email. And you can contact both by email. Zebra's email is willy at mailu and SSH bio is mail at, at joshua.net. And you call, can also join us on the Nexus IRC as usual on unix.chat. Now let's review last week and talk a bit about what we did this week. Yeah. Okay, so last week we talked about X11, Wayland, Xlib, Mir, XCB, etc. and what they all mean and details. And if you don't know the differences between them, what everything does and the graphical environment, then I urge you to listen to this episode. It was pretty dynamic, I guess. Now this week, what did you do, guys? I've been personally working on the a small C project I started uh, this week, like this week actually, which is called Sync, and that is supposed to synchronize files between multiple nodes using uh, by comparing the uh, hash of files and timestamps. And it was pretty interesting because uh, I had to fiddle with hashes and TCP connections again, which is pretty uh, pretty interesting. And also, it feels good to uh, 
to get into programming again. So yeah, I did that mostly this week. I just just I just got started with C, and I, and I am at the early beginning learning what Analog does, and that feels good to, to learn C as it is everywhere on Unix, and a system without anything at least have C. And I I got a mechanical keyboard too. It's a Atreus, not very famous. It's a it's not a split one. Uh, very few keys uh, made by uh, Technomancy, the guy who did uh, the engine. Well, personally, I I started reading a book by Eric Raymond. It's the author of the Cathedral and the Bazaar. So it's a well-known guy. Uh, it's a book called The Art of Unix Programming. So it's sort of like the philosophy behind Unix programming and the history. And I love that a lot of uh, fun stuff. And um, yeah, I've also got first place in the Evoke ASCII art competition. It's like a, a demo scene compo sort of thing. It was pretty fun. So that's about it for this episode. Let's hope you got the big grasp of input devices on Unix. As usual, if you like what you're listening to, you can contribute in multiple ways. The first easy way is to just give your appreciation on IRC or on the forum's extended podcast threads. It uh, gives us a push to know we're going in the right direction. The second way to contribute is by adding some relevant information on those extended threads. A fourth way would be to help me fill the transcript on some episodes that are missing some. And the last way would be to join me on the podcast. And you can do that by asking for a podcast key on IRC or on the forums. And with that key, you can log into the user interface on podcast.nixers.net. And you, on this interface, you set your available time for the next week. And then the best time, the best common time is chosen. And you can join at that time. And remember that you can find all the episodes on this little short link, podcast.nixers.net slash what, W-H-A-T. I wish you a wonderful day and thanks for listening. This was Venom for the Nixers podcast. <laughs>